got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Okay, recently I was listening to an episode of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR news comedy show. And one of their little rhyming jokes was all about how um, wine snobs have been fooling themselves for years because uh, they've done psychological tests and it's impossible for humans to uh, recognize more than four components in a wine. About the fruity bouquets and a glass of Chardonnay with notes of copper plum and wet dog. It's all bull. They're making it up. According to a study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, humans are physically incapable of identifying more than four different taste components in a single mixture. But respected wine reviewers will list six or seven in their reviews. This explains of why one highly rated Burgundy was listed as having, quote, nut and fruit aromas with notes of oak, raspberry, clay, and oh my God, I can't pretend anymore. It tastes, I don't know, red, okay? <laughs> it tastes like red wine, unquote. And, and so it was a big joke, but it, I didn't find it that funny. I don't want to sound defensive because in many ways the story has very little to do with us. It's just that we've set ourselves up as humble judges of wine and it's another opportunity to explain how we approach the subject. Anyway, so I went and, and found their, the reference they were talking about, and it's from a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, let me read it to you, number nine. Okay, let's hear it. A 1996 study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology showed that even flavor-trained professionals cannot reliably identify more than three or four components in a mixture, although wine critics regularly report tasting six or more. Okay, I, I want to get your reaction to this first, and then we can talk more about what they're saying, all right? Well, serving wine to people who consider themselves aficionados, um, I've seen people claim to recognize many more than six different flavors and odd ones at that. First of all, I want to break down this, this sentence a little bit. It's, it says four components. The way we break down wine, it isn't all flavor components. We have alcohol content. We have color, clarity, body. Actually, the majority of these don't involve taste. I would say that they have to be more specific in the verbiage here. The phrase right before that, flavor-trained professionals, leads you to think that the four components in the mixture are all flavor components. Taste and aroma are only two components of the mixture we're focusing on. We haven't come up with more than four taste descriptors in my memory, 
but if we did, it was in a group tasting for one of the dessert wines. When you go around the horn in a group, there's a subtle pressure for uh, the next person to say something unique. We have strained and struggled to come up with one or two flavor components. And uh, I mean, we, we feel lucky if we get maybe two. And I think that falls within what they're saying here. If the science behind the article is true. So we haven't been like going off the deep end and comparing it to... Uh, Black tar. <laughs> saddle leather. <laughs> Haystack. Wet dog. <laughs> Sidewalk chalk. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Chalk was mentioned as a descriptor in the next paragraph. Two wine reviewers each used around six descriptors to describe a wine. So there were 12 descriptors altogether. And, and of course, it turned out that the writers were describing the same wine. Everybody has their own vocabulary and reasons for using certain adjectives. People may be only registering for taste because we only have you know so many centers on the tongue but uh you mentioned the four well they're actually called chemoreceptors on your taste buds and uh there are five in the western world that we recognize and that's saltiness sourness sweetness bitterness and a newer one called savoriness they're finding new ones. A, a chemo receptor that might taste fatty acids is something that they believe may exist. What would you call the science? Physiology? <laughs> okay, we'll use that. <laughs> the sensual sciences. There was a study in 1963 at a university, uh, the University of California at Davis, where they uh, took a white wine and colored it to make different uh, shades of red, and they asked people to judge the wine. Whatever color the, the wine was, they tended to uh, judge it in relationship to what their pre preconceived notions of what a rosé or a Bordeaux, uh, it was a white wine. What I was thinking was we have number 11 uh, color us up a bottle of uh, white and just see if we could tell the white from the red. <laughs> that sounds like a really fun experiment. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> we'll do that later. Okay, now let's talk about the wine we're drinking tonight. And now the juicy truth with number nine and Rotwang. Okay, now let's talk about the wine we're drinking tonight, which is called Oracle. Oracle of the Stars. And that's for our podcast on luck or fortune or fate. They used to think that the stars could uh, determine a person's fate. And it's a, it's a Pinotage 2007 from South Africa. So what is a Pinotage? Well, Pinotage is a relatively new varietal, and it is a, um, a hybrid of the Pinot Noir and the Hermitage grape. Okay, so let's try it. We've opened this bottle, and it's been sitting here all while we've been talking, so that's been a, probably 20 minutes. 20 minutes is about right. While we're forming our initial opinions, 
I thought that I would tell you this. Um, purple lips and teeth are actually a good sign because it means you're really tasting the wine and you're letting it settle into all of your <laughs> taste receptors. Wait, so you, you've spotted a person with purple lips? It's a sign of status among wine drinkers, although it may be embarrassing at other times. <laughs> so I could like wear some purple lipstick and like I'd come off as like knowing more. <laughs> Maybe, perhaps, or something else. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so what do you think? Well, I'm a big fan of blends in general, so I like this because all of the rough edges are smoothed out by the combination of two varietals. You know, I I don't know that much about the Hermitage varietal to know what they were trying to establish with this new varietal, but possibly it's hardy. Maybe it's uh, maybe disease resistant or something. I don't know about disease resistant, but I think Hermitage is more like a Syrah, so more on the bigger red side, whereas Pinot is on totally other end of the spectrum. So this meets at a happy place in the middle. I uh, think this has got a really nice uh, aroma. I, I, it, a lot of times we'll drink a wine and it won't really smell like much or it might uh, in the past it's been like maybe yeasty maybe it's very strong alcohol scent it's it's very pleasant i found i think it's sort of sweet and smoky ah you and i are thinking along the same lines i was thinking smoky too that may be due to oak casking this wine was indeed stored in French oak barrels for nine months. The wine is also only 85% Pinotage, with the remaining 15 being Cabernet. I think that it's pretty well-rounded. Usually with well-rounded wines, I like to um, drink them with food because the really strong bite of, say, a Malbec would be difficult for me to eat food with. But this is more subtle and soft, so it wouldn't overpower what I was eating. It doesn't really have a, a lot of bite or tang to it. It, it is soft. I, you, you said it was sweet and smoky. I don't know. It, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it is uh, very sweet. I think the sweetness is more in the aroma. Maybe like a oh. burnt caramel. Okay, see, you, you, I kind of like think of the taste and smell as kind of one thing because they influence each other so much. So I, I have a really hard time separating the two. But, I mean, if you, you, if you can smell the sweetness like that, that's good. I think we gave first impressions and now we can go down our categories and maybe, I don't know, even rate them. The color, we haven't described it yet, but it is a uh, purpley. Yeah, I think it's more purple than red. I agree. The lighting in here is terrible, but I don't see any sediments. Do you? I don't see any sediments, but it looks pretty opaque 
can we give it a high score because it's a pretty color? Yeah, what, usually we give the color automatic 10 almost. And I want to also uh, err on the side of giving it a higher score because of the lighting in here. I mean, I, I it's very... We're in the basement. It's hard to see. So let, let's give it the color a 10. Okay, and it's definitely not a white wine dyed with red <laughs> food coloring. So we'll give it a 10. We can give uh, the clarity one or two points off, I guess. Well, for as high as the alcohol content is, which is 13.5, you might expect some sediment or some muck at the bottom, like a Malbec or a Cab or even a Shiraz, so, and there's none of that here. Right, I did have a wine where that there was that was the case where there was some junk in the bottom. Oh, no, I remember. This is the one we we did with B12. You, you don't know who B12 is? No, who is B12? B12 is your replacement while you were not here. Besides number 11? That's right. Who's B12? <laughs> It's Barb. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she was like a B12 shot for this show. Let's give oh. it a nine. Okay, nine. Body. I think it's got good body. I do too. The mouthfeel. The amount of alcohol evaporating out of your mouth. The alcohol is uh, evaporating at a certain rate. That could be one aspect of body. And the other could be how viscous that is in your mouth as it swashes around. This wine feels and looks like one with a much lower alcohol content, which I think should be ideal. Yeah, I think we should give it a high number. Let's go for a nine. Okay. Sugar plum. Nice. <laughs> I don't, I've never had a sugar plum, have you? I know the fairies. <laughs> I've had plum in various forms, and it's very subtle and hard to define. So I, I'll gr agree with you and say plum. So smoky plum. Smoky plum. We said caramel, wood, it's at least partially done in oak barrel. I think since we were able to identify so many different aspects that we should give it a high score because we're not scoring for complexity yet. Okay, so we got to assign a number here to the aroma notes. And I, I think it, it, you know, it struck me right away that it had a strong, pleasant aroma. And I think we should give it a high mark. I agree. It didn't make me want to pull away from the glass because of the alcohol smell. Ten? Nine. <laughs> we can't be too nice. I mean, we've we've given out some pretty low scores before. That's true. I always think we're giving it good marks, and then at the end of the tally, it's always around 80 points. So the next thing is the taste notes, and we've, we've uh, mentioned uh, those already, so let's go right to a number. I think while it tastes good, and it can be... It can be drank in lots of different settings, like with food or with chocolate or something like that, but since it's not very specific, maybe a slightly lower score. Not saying that I don't think that this blend is a good thing, because I do think it's a good thing. I would like to drink this wine. I see you eyeing that chocolate. <laughs> 
<laughs> I am the dark chocolate Toblerone. Maybe an eight? Yeah, an, an eight, because there's not one specific thing that's the star of the show. I agree with you, too, that this would be really good to have with uh, some food. Chocolate, yes. Well, next we have complexity. We mentioned a lot of characteristics that we could identify. But I wouldn't necessarily call it complex. I think maybe complexity happens in an older wine, one that's aged. Yeah, I I definitely agree that complexity comes with age. And this is, I mean, (laughs) this is two years old, but I think that anything that was going to develop with this wine has already developed. I agree. This is not one that you'd put in your cellar and hope that for some great complexity to happen. I don't know what to give this as a score. Do you have any clue? I'm thinking maybe a six. I'll go with a six, too. Next, we have acid balance. And I feel really good. Like, acidity didn't even really come up. Yeah, I I think this has got a great acid balance. It's not flat at all. I'd give it a a 10. Yeah, it's definitely not flabby or flat, like you said. And it's, um, you know, acid is not a problem when you're drinking it. Like, usually if acid is out of balance, that's one of the first things you notice. 10 or, okay, yeah. Now, the alcohol balance. Uh, What did we say? This was 13.5, right? Yeah, it's 13.5. And like I said earlier, I think it's a high alcohol content, but tastes like a lower one. That's a good thing, as far as I'm concerned. I totally agree. With the alcohol out of the way, the alcohol doesn't swamp the flavors. Yeah, I would give it a 10. Yeah, I would give it a 10, too, coming from a poor person's perspective. $10 for a high alcohol content. So you've jumped right to our next uh, categories. We gave the alcohol balance a 10, and now we're on to price. It was only $10 a bottle. Since that is our goal, I think we have to say that that's a 10, too. Yeah, I agree. This is our ideal price point. So we'll be right back with uh, the total score. What's our final score? Well, number nine, it's a 90. That has got to be the highest rating one of our wines has ever gotten. Yes, it definitely is. And this is funny because let me tell you the story about what happened with my first bottle of Pinotage. I opened the bottle as per usual, did not decant it, just uh, drank over a period of three days using my handy-dandy Houdini air sucker device. (laughs) It really sucks. (laughs) It really does suck. (laughs) It's got a little rubber stopper with a valve in it, and it sucks out the remaining air out of the bottle, supposedly. I think it only has enough strength to suck maybe, I don't know, the the same volume that the stopper takes up, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) So I don't think it's a strong suction. I don't think it takes out very too much. 
Anyway, so over this period of three days, it got flatter and flatter and flatter, but also it t- started to take on a, a new flavor, and I couldn't define it. After the third day, I realized that the flavor I was tasting now, and th- I wasn't spitting it out in disgust, was fingernail polish. Fingernail polish remover? I mean the remover. Acetone. Have you heard of this happening in wines? I've heard of bad wines going bad from the start, but I've never heard of wine turning into acetone. I was pretty surprised by this, and I looked it up on the, the internet. This is a known problem with some Pinotage. It doesn't necessarily even uh, mean your Pinotage is old and has gotten too much air and started to rust. I guess that once the uh, inventors of Pinotage went through the process of of making the first bottle, they realized that some of it tasted (laughs) like acetone. Fail. (laughs) (laughs) Has your gang been using that phrase? One word for an overall conclusion? Yes, (laughs) I have. It's very effective, I found. So, it's a human fail. (laughs) Exactly. Then Mother Nature did not fail. Question. Does it remove nail polish? (laughs) Oh, man. It's got to at least partly dissolve it. (laughs) Well, when we do our white wine to red experiment, we should also try... (laughs) Removing someone's fingernail polish? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm happy that with this tasting of Oracle Pinotage, we didn't have the acetone flavor problem. But I think that if I used my Houdini air sucker on this bottle, the same thing would happen. And I don't think that we would probably find a a bottle off the shelf that tasted like that. I think with at least this um, brand of wine, it'll only happen if your wine gets too old and air gets to it. That's why I'm a fan of throwing away the cork as soon as you open a bottle. So you have to drink it immediately. That is a good plan. And uh, this this wine is meant to be drunk uh, quickly because of the cork in the bottle was a plastic cork. So this is our first A bottle. I mean, anything over an ID gets an A. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I never got an A, so I didn't know what you meant. <laughs> I think it's funny that it got such high marks when I was thinking, uh, I'm glad I didn't tell my story in advance. People, if you buy this wine, you're going to have to drink it all in in one city because it does not age well. What if you want to see what happens (laughs) and try to remove some nail polish, go for it. The Gingerbread Man in Three Acts You are listening to The Gingerbread Man, a fictional account of Tommy James and the Shondells under contract to Roulette Records. Act 1. Moni Moni, or Bellyache at the Tiki Hut. As we begin our scene, we see the familiar shape of the state of Michigan, as printed on a Gulf gas station fold-up map. When the map is lowered, 
We see it is being held by a black gangster wearing sunglasses and sweating slightly. These words are superimposed on the screen. August 1969, the Tiki Hut truck stop, Route 94. The gangster looks over at the glass window of a truck stop diner and the camera moves up to the window. We are now looking in on a table. We hear muffled laughter and then we are inside. We hear a Motown hit playing over the diner radio. The table is occupied by five young men in their early 20s. They have big hair. It's longish, but not long. It covers their ears and is down to their collars, but they are clean shaven. One of the men is nervously twirling a drumstick back and forth between his fingers. Peter Lucia says, God, I'm carsick. How many cornfields are there till Chicago? Tommy James. That's corn sickness. I know it well. You know where you are, don't you, Pete? Cereal City, Battle Creek. The best to you each morning. Can I order you some cornflakes? Peter Lucia says, I'm going to yak. A waitress comes up to the table smiling with a pad. Another of the chandelles speaks up and in a poor imitation of a lad from Liverpool, Eddie Gray says, We'd like some of your American cornflakes, please. Tommy James, coffee black. Waitress, uh-huh. What will you have with that? Just as Tommy's about to speak, the radio starts playing Money Money. The guys jump out of their seats and start singing with the radio. All eyes are turned their way. A large guy comes out of the kitchen with a spatula still in his hand and says, Don't make me toss you fellas out of here. They all sit back down except for Pete, who walks to the window and looks out. We see the gangster look back. We follow Pete back as he sits down. Tommy is talking to Ron Rossman. It's getting old, man. It's like we're under his thumb. The technology is so happening and everyone's new to it. You and I can work the studio, Ronnie. Ron Rossman. The Mellotron has to be the next album. This bubblegum. Have you let him hear Gingerbread Man? Tommy James. No bing way. It's sure gold. I swear Mushi's not going to put his name on my bing record. Pete. I'm really feeling sick, guys. I'll be right back. The drummer, Peter Lucia, heads to the back of the diner, but leaves out the back exit. We follow as he circles to the kitchen side of the parking lot. The gangster is there waiting. Peter addresses the gangster with anger. What are you doing? Would you like to join us for breakfast? It would probably be less obvious. Mushi's here. Pete. Mushi's where? Gangster pointing. He's across the highway at the motel. At this point, the other members of the band unexpectedly appear behind the drummer. Their faces are tensed, and Tommy is angry and sarcastic. What's happening, Pete? 
Pete turns in surprise, but before he answers, the gangster addresses Tommy James. Gangster. Tommy, Mushi needs to conference with you. Tommy looks rattled. He cringes a bit. Tommy. What's up, Nate? I didn't think Mr. Levy ever traveled outside of Jersey. Nate the gangster. Yeah, it's pretty important, I guess, Tom. You want to get in the car? Tommy's a bit more frightened and looks at each of the band members. For Pete, he has a look of contempt. For the others, a look of sad confusion. Tommy. We're halfway to Chicago. Can't it wait till we're off tour? The gangster holds open the back door to his black sedan and Tommy gets in slowly. He looks at the band and shrugs as Nate closes the door. Act 2, Crystal Blue Persuasion. Nate walks close behind Tommy James as they enter the glass lobby of a motel off of Route 94. The lobby is modern looking for 1969 and very clean with gold accents in the decor. A few men in suits read their papers. A balding man with dark hair and a mustache sits watching the door. Another big guy in a sport coat sits behind. Morris Levy sees Tommy enter. Levy wears a white turtleneck and a pinky ring. He stands up and holds out his hand to Tommy. He's slightly taller than James. Levy speaks in a voice like sandpaper. Levy. Hey, Tommy boy. There you are. I brought something for you. He extends his hand back to the guy who is sitting behind him and is handed a seven-inch record. Levy says, Check this out. Levy hands the record to James. It's a vinyl picture disc. It has a photo of Tommy and the boys posing with a Rolls Royce. They are dressed in their finest 60s wear, lime green frock coats and frilly cravats. Tommy is in the back, sitting on the roof. The chandelles are posed hanging off the bumper and fenders. Above their heads is the title Moni Moni. Tommy takes the record and looks a little relieved. Tommy says, Yeah, man, that's really cool. James goes to hand it back, but Levy doesn't accept it. Levy says, Keep it, kid. Show the boys. We pressed a few hundred copies for overseas radio promotions. We like to take care of you, you see? Ah, Pete tells me you've been working on something in the studio. Something with the Mellotron. Tommy. I didn't know you and Pete were so tight. I mean, he's almost like, I don't know, some kind of snitch. Levy. Ah, don't be too upset, Tommy. We're like a family at Roulette. You know, I like to know what's going on. Just like any dad. When were you going to play the gingerbread man for me? I'd really like to hear it. Tommy, you seem to know an awful lot about my business. Levy loudly. You don't have any business without me, kid. Now I just need to have the tapes you made at Allegro. Where are they? Tommy, they aren't ready yet, Moshi. They aren't ready yet. I just want to do a little more with them, you know. I think the production needs to be tighter. I went a little overboard with the toys. Levy. Sure, sure. You're a real artist. Like I was telling Lennon, you know, John Lennon. Give me the b***ing tapes or we're gonna have a b***ing problem. 
Here, Levy's goons move on either side of James. People in the lobby look up, but as Levy gives them intimidating stares, they go back to reading their papers. Tommy says in a stutter, They're back in the van, the van over at the truck stop, in the lid of the key keyboard case, the, the lid. Levy's mouth twitches into a kind of smile, and he says very calmly, Why don't you go get them for us? His goons look up like trained dogs, alert for orders, but none come. Tommy says, yeah, okay. Tommy is shaking. He backs away and turns to go, but Levy adds in a big grin. Hey, kid, are you walking? Nate, give Tommy boy your keys. James takes the keys in the picture desk and heads quickly for the door. Nate the gangster looks confused and says to Levy, don't you want me to go with him? Levy's laughing. I think I scared the b- out of him. You might not get your deposit back for what he's going to do to your rental. The goons start to break up with laughter. Levy says, Nate, drive Tony over to the truck stop. Tony, you bring me the tapes. Nate, you keep following the boys to Chicago. Call me when you get there. Intermission. The Gingerbread Man in three acts. You are listening to The Gingerbread Man, a fictional account of Tommy James and the Shondells under contract to Roulette Records. Tommy James started this morning on his way to a gig in Chicago, traveling with his band through Michigan by car. At a truck stop, he learns the drummer in his group, the Shondells, is an informer to his record producer, the infamous Morris Levy. Tommy has just had an unpleasant meeting with Levy, who demanded Tommy turn over secret tapes of a new song that Tommy is sure to be a big hit. Out of fear, Tommy has agreed to fetch the tapes for Levy. Listen. Act three, I think we're alone now. Tommy James drives over the highway. He sees that the Shondells have not moved the van, but he's upset and scared. He drives past the truck stop into Michigan farm country. Soon he is lost. He still holds the picture disc in one hand and steers the big car with the other. He sees residential, suburban-looking houses. He turns onto a street called Keith Lee Drive. He sees medium-sized houses with well-kept lawns. Most are split-level or ranch-style. He needs a phone and directions. He wants to call the band at the truck stop or get back to the highway. He pulls into the gravel driveway of a red brick rambler home and gets out of the car. He starts to approach the front door, but then he hears splashing, laughing, and his recording of Hanky Panky. James circles around behind the house and stands outside a low fence that surrounds a swimming pool. Four children are playing. Two small children, eight and six, are swimming, and two older children, 12 and nine, are beside the pool playing a hi-fi. 
The nine-year-old boy is twisting and jumping to the music to the delight of the older girl working the hi-fi. The song ends and Tommy James claps in appreciation of the dance. He says, Hey kid, I like your music. The two older kids come forward to the fence. The boy says, That's Peggy's music. Peggy. He doesn't live here, he's just my nephew. James. Well, he was sure moving. Peggy. I have boxes filled with 45s. Tommy. That's quite a few. Who is that you are listening to? The boy. That's the Shondells. Tommy. Tommy James and the Shondells? The boy. Yeah. Peggy. I have all Tommy James records. Tommy. Wow, that's great. Tommy realizes he's still holding the picture disc. The 45 Morris Levy gave him. Peggy continues. Sometimes boxes of records get damaged on my dad's train, and he gets to bring them home to me. Tommy is momentarily confused. He's curious about how Peggy comes by her records. And he says, But if they were damaged, you couldn't play them, right? Peggy. Only the boxes are damaged. They always ship extras just in case a box falls off the train. We get corn pops that way, too. They fall off my dad's train all the time. He works on the Grand Trunk. Tommy sees the corruption behind the young girl's boast. Tommy. You're a lucky girl. Hey, I need to get to the highway. You know where the Tiki Hut is? Peggy. Everybody knows that. Tommy smiles and says, Listen, if you give me directions, I'll give you this brand new record. He holds the picture disc up for the children to see. Their eyes widen. They've never seen anything like it with a photograph embedded in the vinyl. But a suspicious scowl darkens Peggy's face and she says, I can't take things from strangers. The boy pipes up and says, I can. But Peggy is quick to quash this idea. She puts out an arm to hold the boy back and says, No, you can't. Besides, you don't know how to get there. Tommy James balances the record on top of the fence and steps back away. He says, Of course you can't take it from me now. But listen, if you give me directions, I will just leave the record here on the fence, and when you see I've gone, you can have it. Peggy thinks this over and sees nothing wrong with the proposition. She explains the simple directions that will put the Tiki Hut into James's view within minutes. He thanks her and leaves waving his hand and saying to the boy, Keep rocking, kid. Once his car is barely out of the driveway, Peggy springs to the fence and grabs the 45. She just stares at the picture for a minute. She won't let the boy touch the record, and when he suggests they play it, she says absolutely not. She thinks to herself she will wait until she is alone. The Rodcast musical bed you're hearing is called Haunted. It's used with the permission of the composer Kim Schutterley. If you have a good idea for a Rodcast theme or a wine suggestion for our review, email your idea to mail at rotcast.com or call the Rotline. The Rotline phone number will be posted at the website or Skype us at CallRotCast. Visit www.rotcast.com to learn more about the wines and link to more content. Listen next time.
when you will hear. You have to believe.